If I can get everybody to make their way back to their seat. Thank you very much for being willing to chat and talk. Um, I think this is the tail end of spring break. And so hopefully not only will we have everybody next, back next week, but hopefully the weather will be in the 70s. So I don't know about you guys, but talk to me. I'm ready for spring. So uh, we are, I was out of town last week. Um, we are in the second week of a sermon series. By the way, thank you, Tom Combs, wherever you are. Tom did a great job last week. And he began our series called Seven Stories. So we're looking at um, seven different parables that Jesus tells in the context of Scripture, and he began for us. And so we're going to jump into um, the second uh, one of those parables today from Matthew chapter 13. But before we do that, I'm going to uh, take a moment and I'm going to pray. Father, thank you um, for inviting us into this place. Thank you for pursuing us. Father, we... um, have all been lost sheep, and we are here this morning because you have drawn us to yourself. You came looking for us in Jesus. Um, You've been looking uh, for us through your spirit, Father. You've been looking uh, for us and searching us out through Young Life and through campus outreach and through people that love us. And so, Father, we're here today, and I ask, Father, that um, we wouldn't be able to leave this place today without having had an encounter with you, the living God. And Father, I I ask that as we have that encounter with you, that we wouldn't turn our back on you, that we wouldn't walk away from you, but rather we would uh, give you access um, to our minds, that we would give you access to our hearts, uh, that we would uh, turn over control of our mouths and our bodies to you and to your kingdom. Father, we pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. And then 18 through 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. The word of the Lord. So the good news about parables and studying these stories is um, I don't have to use an opening illustration because Jesus already did it for me. 
And so those of you who are here this morning get to hear the second sermon I've ever preached without using an opening illustration, so consider yourself fortunate. So what we know is that everybody loves stories. I have honestly yet to meet anyone who doesn't enjoy a good story. Um, We're all drawn in by a good one. Maybe people prefer nonfiction, like true stories. Maybe other people prefer fictional stories, but everybody loves a good story. As little children, um, our parents, most of us in this room, our parents read maybe Dr. Seuss to us. You know, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. Maybe they read Green Eggs and Ham. I had a friend um, that went to school in Scotland, and he had 17 different people from 17 different countries each read a section of Green Eggs and Ham to demonstrate the different accents. Absolutely amazing. Maybe some of you maybe can remember the cat in the hat. You know, I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I remember the tension of sort of wondering, are the kids going to be able to get the house cleaned up before their parents get home? Anybody remember that? Is this me? Anyway, as we got older, we got drawn into different stories. Maybe the stories we read were The Hunger Games. Maybe it was The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. Uh, Maybe it was the Twilight series. Loved it. Just kidding. I didn't read it. It's probably great. I don't know. Anyway, eventually, many of us traded in the stories that were contained in books for stories that were embedded And maybe movies or in TV, so think about Star Wars or any of the Disney movies like Inside Out or maybe a a TV show like Seinfeld or something like Modern Family, right? And so oftentimes, stories are fun, right? Maybe sometimes um, just for fun. But maybe more often, I would argue, stories are purposeful. They have an intention. They have a a meaning. They aim to teach us something or, or maybe to challenge the reader in some particular way. And that's why great teachers, and I'm not including myself among those, great teachers always use stories to teach principles or information about their particular discipline because they know that often the way to gain access to someone's mind, to change the way that they think, it, they have to come in through the back door of their heart in order to, for people to let them in. It shouldn't be any surprise then to know that Jesus' primary way of teaching was through story. In fact, we, we call these stories parables in Scripture. And that Greek word parable is made up of two words, uh, para, which means alongside, and then balo, which means to throw. And so what you're doing when you tell a story or a parable is you're throwing one thing that people know alongside of something that people don't know. And you're helping to teach them about the thing they don't know through the thing they do know. And so this morning... We talked about something that people in that day and age would have understood completely, which was this idea of a farmer going out and sowing seed onto soil, and some of that seed taking root and some of it not taking root. Often, Jesus would tell these stories or these parables, and they were meant to rebuke or challenge somebody, and what would happen is those people would get completely sucked in until at the very end they realized that Jesus was actually confronting them. And by that time, they were already emotionally invested. He already had them. Whether they liked it or not, they had heard what he had to say. And that's definitely true here in the story of the sower, the seed, and the soil. And so the question is, what do we see in this story? What are we supposed to take away from this story that Jesus tells? Let's begin by understanding that we have to to know what the context of this story is. Uh, One of my professors in seminary used to say, context is part of text. And so... It begins in verse 1 by saying, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And so that same day is linked with something that happened that same day. So what happened? Well, on that same day, Jesus had healed a man with a shriveled hand, 
And the Pharisees, who were offended and threatened by his power and by his importance, and they were offended by the fact that he did this act on the Sabbath, they began to formulate a plot to have Jesus killed. And on that same day, Jesus had cast a demon out of a man, also on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, rather than going, hey, is it possible that this is the Messiah, attributed Jesus' power to Satan, right, on that same day. And then after all of this, the Pharisees had the gall to come to Jesus, and they had the audacity to ask him for a sign, for more proof, as if casting out a demon and healing a man who had a shriveled hand wasn't enough already. So that same day was pretty significant. It had also, I would imagine, uh, already been a long day for Jesus when he stood on the shore of the Sea of Galilee in that evening, in the dusk of that day, surrounded by a crowd that crushed and pushed him so much so that he hopped into a fishing boat, pushed a few yards off sea, off shore, and created a natural amphitheater from which to preach and to teach and to speak to this crowd of people. And in light of all that backstory, in light of everything that had happened that same day, the content of this parable really shouldn't have been any surprise. But, interestingly enough, it, it did come as a surprise, at least to the disciples it did. Have you ever noticed that parables and Proverbs, so think about the book of Proverbs, they often leave you hanging, right? They often leave you kind of confused. Both parables and Proverbs are intended to create cognitive dissonance. They're actually created to make you go, wait a minute, Proverb A just said this, now Proverb B says that, what do I do? Well, they're intended to make you wrestle with it. Parables do the same thing. They demand you to engage in a little bit of an intellectual wrestling match. Now, the first surprising thing in this parable is actually probably lost on us. We, we know the story a little bit. We understand sowing and seed to some degree. But actually, this parable would have been a little bit confusing to the disciples and very confusing to the crowds. The kingdom of God is like seed and soil. Here's why it was confusing. That's a farming metaphor. They would have understood so that immediately, right? Back then, you would have, a farmer would have gone out into a field. He would have taken a handful of seed and just sort of thrown it out into the field like this. Then, actually, they would have come and plowed up those fields afterwards, letting the seed fall down into the soil. They would have understood that. But what they wouldn't have understood is why Jesus was applying this farming metaphor, this gardening metaphor, to the kingdom. Remember that the disciples and the crowds and the Pharisees, they were all still expecting the Messiah and the inauguration of the kingdom to be a dramatic overthrow of the Roman government, right? They weren't expecting seeds and soil and fertilizer. That's not what they were expecting. If Jesus had said the kingdom of God is like Thor flying in with his war hammer, they would be like, I got it. That's good. Good analogy, Jesus. Or you know, if, they would have, if Jesus would have said, the kingdom of God is like Maximus rising, riding in on his, on his war horse into battle, then the people would be like, yeah, like that illustration, that's good. But Jesus said, against all of those misconceptions, that the kingdom of heaven is actually like a farm and a field, and it's more like a sower and some seed. And so they would have been just a little bit confused. Now, the second confusing or shocking thing about this parable is was who it indicted the pharisees the pharisees were theologically trained right they were leaders religious leaders in that that uh, that day and age in that culture 
They were theologically trained. Their external morality was seemingly unimpeachable, right? They were squeaky clean. And they, of all people, should have recognized the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom. But instead, they rejected Jesus and they rejected his kingdom. And so Jesus, in the face of their opposition, he teaches them this story about a sower who he says later is himself. And the seed, which is the message of the kingdom of God, and these four different types of soil. We're going to look at those four different types of soil very quickly. The first type of soil is representative of, of hard or calloused hearts. Listen to the verses that are associated with this soil. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. So Jesus later explains the hardened soil this way because the disciples came to him and said, hey, what's the story all about? And in verse 18, Jesus says, hear then the parable of the sower. He interprets it for them. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And so some of us read this section of the parable and we wonder, because of our modern farming techniques, we think, well, why in the world would you sow seed on a path, right? But that's, again, that's not what happened. You can just imagine this guy out in, this, in the field throwing the seed out, and there would have been footpaths that would have crisscrossed the soil before it had been plowed. And, and honestly, anybody who's ever sown grass seed before uh, with one of those spreaders, you know how it happens. You got the spreader filled with grass seed, and as you walk, you know, it, most of it goes out into the yard, but a lot of it goes onto the concrete sidewalk, and you know it's just going to be wasted there can't take root the path jesus speaks of here would have been a hardened footpath of uh, of packed soil it would have been so hard that instead of falling into the soil where it would have had a chance to root it would have sat on top of the hard packed ground exposed food for the birds and so if you've ever been to chipotle and you're sitting out on the porch at chipotle you know there's little brown sparrows that hop around out there and anytime you drop a chip, the sparrows on it, right? And then if your kids see the sparrows, they crumple up the chips and they throw them out and the sparrows are all over it. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Is he's saying before the field even had a chance to be plowed, the birds would have gotten that seed immediately. His interpretation is really twofold. He says this, he says, one, the soil of these listeners' hearts was hard and calloused, closed off to the word of the kingdom. In other words, it was, they were shut down. They did not want to allow access to the message of the kingdom. That was number one. The second interpretation is that the hardness of their hearts to the word of the kingdom or the word of God caused them to be easy prey for Satan who came along and plucked the seed. And so in the immediate context of this parable, Jesus is clearly speaking of the Pharisees, the really religious people, the people with really good theology. They had their kingdom already, and they didn't need his kingdom. In their kingdom, they had power, they had influence, they made the rules, and they exacted punishment and administered rewards as they saw fit. Their hearts were hardened to the word of God because his kingdom actually threatened their kingdom. It actually superseded their kingdom. Now, what's interesting is, I promise you that we have these very people in our midst today. And I can say that because there was a point in time where I was one of these people. They're the super religious. 
right? But they're also the exact opposite. They're the ardent irreligious. And so these people who are hardened ground, who have calloused hearts, are both the really, really religious and the really, really irreligious. Another way to define these two groups in Keller's language would have been religious legalists on the one end and then the secular legalists on the other. The super religious could be some of the televangelists and megachurch pastors of today. Could be, I don't know, right? The super religious could be some of the famous bloggers and podcasters. Uh, Today's Jim Joneses and Ted Haggards and Jim Bakers just in different clothing and different technology, right? They can be also super religious mothers and fathers. They could be people who homeschool and people who go to Christian school. I can say both of those because we homeschooled our kids for a while, and I grew up going to a Christian school. The issue is whether or not you trust in the kingdom of God or in your own moral kingdom, right? Because if all of your hope and all of your trust and all of your safety and security, like mine, was in your moral kingdom and the ability to be really, really good and go, hey, God, accept me because of all of this that I have done, then you'd be threatened by God's inside-out, upside-down Jesus kingdom, right? They're not relying upon Jesus' righteousness, but their own righteousness, and the soil of their hearts is hard. But can also be the ardently irreligious, right? It could be the Bill Mars, it could be the Sam Harris's, it could be the Richard Dawkins, anyone who has invested their own secular, invested in their own secular kingdom so much that they're unwilling to have their own kingdom disrupted no matter what. And so the seed has no chance, right? It's hard soil. Super religious, irreligious, both of them can have hard hearts to Jesus and to the message of the kingdom. So how does this apply to us? Remember, there are two audiences. And so one of the ways in which you want to read a parable is you want to look at the different characters, you want to look at the different sort of people listening. And, and, and there are two audiences here. They're really the disciples, and then they're the crowds in general. And so putting ourselves in the place of the disciples, part of what Jesus is doing for the disciples is he's preparing them and he's preparing us for the fact that some people we know and some people we love are going to reject the message of Jesus and we need to know that it's not our fault, right? It's not your fault. If they didn't listen to Jesus, they sure aren't going to listen to you, right? It's up to Jesus, it's up to the Holy Spirit. You, you can't do it, right? And so he's preparing the disciples and saying, look, you're going to preach the word, you're going to preach the message of this kingdom, and there are just going to be some people that aren't interested. You need to be prepared for that. If we put ourselves in the position of the crowds, not the position of the disciples, then this section of the story is actually a diagnostic tool for you and for me to sit back and kind of go, is this me? Am I the hardened soil, Right? And the question for us, diagnostically, would be, are we holding on to our kingdoms, whether it's a secular kingdom or even a, a religious kingdom, are we holding on to our kingdoms so tightly that our heart is hardened to the kingdom of God, right? Are we holding on to our moral righteousness so much that we can't trust in Jesus to be our righteousness, right? Are we holding on to some other area or some other kingdom of our lives so tightly that there's no way that we could turn over that kingdom to God's kingdom and power within us? Are we holding on to our kingdom so tightly that our hearts are hard to God's kingdom? That's the first soil. Second soil is representative of shallow hearts. So we'll begin in verse five. It says this, other seeds fell on rocky ground. 
where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Jesus goes on to explain the soil in this way. Verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word immediately and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and then tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, and immediately he falls away. So around the foundation of our house on 14 Quail Hollow uh, is an area covered with pea gravel. Now imagine that I was actually good at doing lawn care and lawn maintenance, and I had put that you know, weed suppressant barrier beneath the pea gravel, right? Let's just pretend I had done that. Well, then you can imagine that if I'm spreading grass seed and some grass seed gets in the pea gravel, it can kind of make its way down through the pea gravel and sit on top of that barrier, and maybe it sits in a little puddle of water. And so it, it might sprout up in that little puddle of water, but it's not ever going to be able to take root because of that, that weed barrier. And so as soon as it gets hot and dry, that little blade of grass is going to turn yellow and it's going to die because it cannot take root. If the first soil represented the Pharisees, then this soil almost certainly represents some portion of the crowds who actually have begun to follow. Jesus, they're excited about him, right? He's exciting. He's intriguing, right? There are displays of power. Occasionally, there's free food. They're entertaining talks, right? These people, filled with emotion, excitedly but shallowly embrace the message of Jesus, but they haven't actually counted the cost, and so when inevitable suffering or tribulation arrive, they dry up, they dwindle, they fall away. Now, one incredibly, incredibly important clarification here is this. It's not just that they fall away because of suffering in general, but they fall away because of suffering, tribulation, or persecution, which arises on account of the word. Let that sink in just for a moment, right? These people don't fall away from God. They don't leave the kingdom because things get tough. They fall away from God and walk away from the kingdom because ultimately the word of the kingdom comes into conflict with whatever the word of culture is, and then all of a sudden they go, whoa, I did not sign up for that. Along the way, I've experienced some level of persecution for being a Christian, although it sounds laughable to say that because I don't live in Russia or in China. Uh, High school was not that big of a deal. Um, Most of the persecution came in the form of, hey, BP, I'm going to get you drunk. That was usually the persecution. (laughs) I I literally can, can close my eyes and hear a friend of mine named Jeff saying that to me from high school. He probably said that to me about 47 times. Anyway, hey, BP. In college, working at Furman University as a lifeguard in the summertime, um, I would have conversations with students and professors, which I absolutely loved, and occasionally some of those would display a particular level of scorn or disdain because I was, A, a follower of Jesus, because, B, I believed in salvation by faith in Christ alone, and because, C, I generally held to the historical, orthodox, 2,000-year-old version of Christianity— And so there was a little bit of disdain, a little bit of scorn. But all of that, honestly, is not that big of a deal compared to what each of us are likely to face in the near future as the claims of God's kingdom, the claims of Scripture, come into direct conflict 
with the values of the world. Now remember, the audience here, we've got to interpret this according to who our two audiences are, disciples and crowds. And so the lesson here to the disciples also applies to us and frankly fills me with sadness. Jesus is saying to the disciples, you as my witnesses will see people accept the good news and then you'll see them fall away when they experience the reality of God's word. They'll be faced with a question of authority. Is it scripture or is it culture? Is it my word or is it your emotions and your experiences? And when faced with that tension, with that conflict, these people will make their choice and they will walk away offended by the word of God, offended by a kingdom that claims to have authority over theirs. Jesus is preparing the disciples and he's preparing you and me for this sadness, saying it's going to happen. Don't be surprised when it does. Don't be surprised when you see people who you thought were believers, who were Christians. Don't be surprised when you see them fall away on account of my word, right? Now, again, if we put ourselves in the position of the crowds, not the disciples, Then again, this lesson is a diagnostic tool for us, and this time the question is, what is your ultimate authority, right? What is your ultimate authority? Who has the final say about you and your life and about what's true? Is it the word of God or is it the word of post-modernity? What and who are you rooted in? Again, there will be calloused hearts. There will be shallow hearts. And then the third soil he talks about is the soil of these divided hearts. So look at verse 7. Verse 7 says this, Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Jesus explains this soil this way. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves un fruitful. Now, in our backyard, Krista planted some blueberry bushes, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, and they've mostly done really well with the exception of a drought that we had a couple years ago. But over the last couple of years in particular, there are some indigenous shrubs that are sort of right along where these blueberry bushes are, and they've begun to grow and encroach more and more and more until one of the blueberry bushes was in danger of being overgrown entirely. These shrubs would have competed for water and sunlight And the shrubs ultimately would have won, right? The blueberry bush, it may have lived had Krista not cut back the indigenous bushes. Um, But if it had lived, it it wouldn't have flourished at least, right? It wouldn't have borne much fruit. Many of us became Christians in childhood. Maybe you grew up in the church and became a Christian at vacation Bible school, you know? Maybe it was youth group, or maybe it was a Christian summer camp, or maybe you decided to follow Jesus in high school because of young life. Or maybe it was in college because of campus outreach. Whatever it was, it was wonderful, right? When you actually have this encounter with Jesus, when you have an an encounter with the author of reality, it actually, it makes you alive, right? And so you can think back to whenever that moment was for you where you walked with God and you experienced the God of the universe, the author of reality, who cared just about you, right? He grabbed a hold of your heart and he began to break your addictions He smoothed out a rough edge here, filled in a gap there. Or maybe God grabbed your anxious heart, and maybe what he gave you was peace. 
It's just a peace that you longed for. You didn't know it then, but your life was actually going to get a lot, lot harder. In your late 20s, in your 30s, you begin working a 40 to a 55-hour uh, week at your job. You know, maybe you've got a couple or three kids. Maybe you've got a mortgage. Maybe you've got a cell phone bill. And then one of your kids need braces. And maybe, for goodness sakes, you have to buy a minivan. Maybe you send your kids to wind-shaped summer camp. And little by little, we make choices to place our kingdom before God's kingdom until we're so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good. And ultimately, we find that our hearts are divided. It's relatively easy to tell in this parable that the first two groups aren't Christians. Like that's, there's no confusion about that. But with this group, it's a lot harder to tell. Do the thorns entirely choke the life out of the seeds? Do they remain alive but hardly bear any fruit? I've always read this actually and assumed that this third soil, that they're not Christians. They fall away from God and they're lost. But others allow for the fact that they are indeed Christians. Spurgeon said this. He said the third group is on a boat to heaven. They can't fall off and drown, but they can fall on the deck and break a leg and spend the rest of the trip in the infirmary. Tim Keller says this about the third group. He says, they have little to no power. They're following Jesus, but they're also filled with anxiety. They need to ask themselves, why are they so unhappy? Why are they so miserable? They're being choked out, and as a result, they are lonely, they're afraid, they're miserable. And then he says, the only way that you're ever going to be happy is if Jesus is your Lord, right? So what do we do with this thorny soil, these people of divided hearts? It may help here again to go back to the hermeneutic principle of remembering who the audience is made up of, disciples and crowds. So Jesus' message for the disciples is, don't be surprised when you see people who seem to follow me having divided hearts that really make them pretty unfruitful. Be ready for this reality. Don't be shocked when you see it and know what the issue is. It's divided hearts. Putting ourselves in the place of the crowds, this parable again serves as a diagnostic tool. And honestly, this group is likely to be where most of us are this morning. This is probably where most of us are. We slowly choose soccer games over Sunday worship. We choose certain financial obligations over tithing. We choose to read the new app on our phones instead of pondering and praying over the words of the author of reality. If you're miserable, if you're anxious, if you're unhappy, and if you're feeling choked out, consider whether or not your heart has become slowly and imperceptibly divided. You have to make a decision. What or who is your ultimate hope? What or who is ultimately your source of joy? The things dividing your heart are good things, right? Their children, their vacations, their work, their school, their camp, but ultimately none of those things can save you. They cannot be your identity. They cannot be your peace. None of those things can set you free. Calloused hearts, shallow hearts, divided hearts. The last category is sort of the easiest. Verse 8 says this, Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. 
by the way, a good yield would have been tenfold. And so Jesus is really describing a miraculous uh, result here of the soil. Jesus explains it this way. He says, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. And so most of us in this room have grown up, at least many of us have grown up in the southeast, where the ground is comprised of Georgia red clay. You could put a shovel in the terracotta earth, turn it over, and it's the consistency of Play-Doh. You can grow some things in it, but it needs better soil mixed in with it. In northwest Ohio, where Krista's grandparents live, it's German farm country, and it's mile after mile after mile of these big square plots of alfalfa <laughs> and, uh, and other crops that are being grown in little white farmhouse after little white fa- farmhouse and barn after barn. The roads are straight, the earth is flat, and the soil looks like coffee grounds, right? It's black, and it looks like it just came out of the bottom of your French press. You drop a seed in the soil of Van Wert, Ohio, and it will spring to life immediately in no time. Jesus is saying it's the same way with certain people when they hear the word of God. Their hearts are rich soil. They hear the word of the kingdom, and they take off and they grow, producing fruit. You could think about Eric Little, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham. I tend also to think of Emily Kalin, who I saw here this morning. And I think of Luke Hembry, and I think of Brenda Briggs, who's not here. She's in Israel, I think, right now. And some of these people, they're in ministry proper. Maybe they're in Young Life. Maybe they're in campus outreach. But many are just lawyers and teachers and doctors. They're moms, they're dads, who have simply opened up their heart to God and to the gospel and to this message of the kingdom. And as a result, they're bearing the fruit of a heart that belongs to Jesus. And so the question for us today and for you today is, where are you, right? Where is your heart? Are you hard-hearted and calloused? And are you close to the kingdom of God because God's kingdom threatens your kingdom? Is that where you are? Or are you shallow soil, shallow-hearted, and offended by the depth, the cost, and the fidelity demanded by the kingdom of God in opposition to the values of the larger culture? Is your heart divided? Is your heart distracted from the kingdom by the pressures of life and family and wealth? Or is your heart open and alive because of the kingdom of God within you? It's important that we answer these questions today. It's exactly why Jesus gave us this parable, right? He gave the parable as a diagnostic to say, where am I? Like, what's most valuable to me? Like, what do I treasure? What's most important for me? Where do I find my identity? Where do I find my security? Where do I turn for ultimate truth and goodness and beauty? What's the answer to that question? As you look around the room today, there are tables with bread and wine. And these tables of bread and wine represent any number of things. Obviously, they, recommend, they, they, they communicate forgiveness They communicate God saying, because of the perfect life and death and resurrection of my son Jesus, his body and blood shed for you, you're forgiven, right? So that's one of the things they they represent. But one of the things they also represent is they also represent nourishment and sustenance. They represent the ability to make you strong. 
And so it's very clear that if you're in the first two groups of soil today, that uh, this just isn't a meal for you, right? It doesn't mean that eventually you can't take it, but it means that you need to ponder and think and, and really wrestle with God about the nature of your own heart and whether or not you're willing to turn your heart and your kingdom over to him and to his kingdom. But for those of you who are in the fourth group, the good soil, man, you are welcome to come to the table today, not because of your fidelity, not because of your righteousness, but because of the righteousness and the fidelity of Jesus. Now, for those of us, and I say us because I think that's where I am, I think it's where most of us are, for those of us who are in that third group, it's an opportunity today to go, oh man, I need to confess, I need to repent that I have trusted in these other good things that God has given, in me, given to me, my wife, my kids, my job, my health. I've trusted in those things ultimately, and I've been distracted from trusting in you, Lord. And so part of what we do today is we confess, we repent, we believe that we're offered forgiveness as we turn to him, and we ask for forgiveness, but we also believe that he strengthens us to live the life that not only he desires for us to live, but the life of faithfulness that, if we're honest, that we desire that we would live. And so this, remeal, this meal today is a reminder of forgiveness, but it's also a reminder and a promise of strength. I'm going to read the words of institution. I'm going to let you sit there and pray and think uh, and wrestle for a moment. But if you can simply say, I trust in Christ alone for my salvation, that this meal, this family meal, this table in the kingdom of God, this is for you. It's for your forgiveness and it's for your strength. And when the time is right, you may get up, tear off a piece of bread and dip it in this wine and receive the forgiveness and the sustenance of the body and the blood of Jesus. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, though this parable is, um, in some respects, a hard parable for us all to hear because it exposes um, just a little bit of the sin and the impurity in our hearts um, it exposes what we functionally trust in and find our identity in. And so, Father, for myself at least, I, I ask that you would forgive me. Um, I pray that you would forgive me for, for trusting in the good things that you've given me uh, instead of trusting in you and the perfect life and death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that, um, that my vision of your son, Jesus, that he would be more beautiful to me than everything else. And Father, I pray that I would stand in your presence and that your glory would be undoing and that your majesty and your justice and your transcendence um, would cause me to lift up my hands and to bow my head and to offer all that I have to you, Father. I pray that that would not just be for tr true for me, but it would be true for those of us in this room this morning. And I pray that as we receive this this meal, the symbol and the sign that you give us, um, that you will strengthen our weary hearts. We pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.